Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. I'm William Chen. And I'm Sarah Watt. And each month at Cinema in Context, we discuss two films, one current and one retrospective, with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. This month, we are discussing In the Mood for Love, which came out in 2000, and Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, the latest Marvel offering, which came out this year. The connection being, and we haven't done the same actor in a long time, but the connection is the same actor, Tony Leung. So I'm going to hand it over to Sarah to give us a bit of a summary of the 2000 Criterion Collection film In the Mood for Love. Sarah. Thank you, Jeremy. So back in 2000, Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai made a film that changed not just the course of his career, but the course of, broadly speaking, Asian cinema with In the Mood for Love. Now, In the Mood for Love is an exquisitely, beautifully uh, aesthetic, gorgeous sounding, gorgeous looking, gorgeously romantic film uh, it stars Tony Leung, Chi Wai, and uh, Maggie Cheung as so. Now listen carefully, dear listeners. Maggie Cheung lives with her husband in a small room, like a small apartment, uh, next door to Tony Leung, who lives in his small apartment room with his wife. Uh, however, his wife and her husband are off um, d- having an affair, And so this brings Maggie and Tony close together in an unexpected relationship. Excellent. Thank you, Sarah. And William, give us a bit of an overview of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Alrighty. So Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is the latest offering in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, being the 25th film and one of the earlier films in their Phase 4. It stars um, Liu Ximu as the titular Shang-Chi. As he discovers that there's something, oh gosh, what happened in this movie again? (laughs) (laughs) You know we're keeping this in. We're keeping this in. Okay, so. Should we workshop it? Should we workshop it together? (laughs) Okay. There's a magical island where there's Pokemon. We know that. Um, (laughs) There is 10 rings that Sarah has rightly said are actually more like bracelets. Bracelets. That's right. And we've got Aquafina just doing what Aquafina does best. Aquafina. Right. The best friend, hanger on, she's exquisite. And yeah, I mean, his dad, um, Shanxi's dad, is a bad dude that has apparently done horrible, horrible things through his past. Um, and How long yet, does that past go back, William? Can you tell thousands us? And thousands, thousands and thousands of years. years. Wow. Yes. Point, that's not really explained. Like, it's, is, it, is it the power of the rings? I, I, uh, yeah, the power of the rings makes him immortal and gives him more sorts of Iron Man powers as well. Okay. But basically, I, I apologize, uh, ladies and gents. Uh, so Shang-Chi, or Sean, as he calls himself when he flees to America, uh, finds out more about his past as he pursues his dad into mystical, transdimensional spaces to fight a cosmic evil. Nice. That's a good encapsulation of something that I didn't quite understand. 
love it. I'd say those of you listening, it's worth saying that we are we are recording this episode remotely. We are still in lockdown here in Auckland, New Zealand, which means that Sarah, William, and I are unable to meet in person. However, we have a plan to do our end of year recording together because we should be able to by that point. Uh, and we've Hooray. already planned to do it with some wine and nibbles. Uh, and it'll be really nice to be together in the same space. So look forward to that. But until then, we, we're recording through the interwebs. And the last thing I'll say at this point before diving into our discussion is we will be discussing both films uh, in, in detail and with spoilers. So if you haven't seen either film, I would suggest pausing this episode and coming back to it at a future date. All right, team, who would like to jump in and with which film? All right, I think... It's it's really, really interesting that we had Tony Leung as the connective tissue of these two movies this time around, because so much of, in my opinion, what makes Shang-Chi tick is his character, right? Um, I know the film isn't ostensibly about him. It's about mm-hmm. his son and kind of Shang-Chi's own hero's journey as he discovers who he is and fulfills his potential. But really, I mean, I agree, to completely agree with the critics on this one. Like, Tony Leung is who makes this movie tick, right? He is probably one of the better Marvel villains in the franchise that has had historically a really huge villain problem. They they usually do, like, good origin stories, and each of the heroes within the MCU have the thing that makes them who they are. But the villains are usually really boring and one-note and... You, it either comes in, you know, the low-key flavor where he just wants to create chaos and destruction or the sad sack, oh, man, I was wronged in the past and I'm kind of a good guy until I'm not, such as in movies like Black Panther. Um, and I, I find Tony Leung's performance and how the character is written, his character of Wen Wu, is, is such a breath of fresh air. Uh, the ending is a little iffy, but even with that being said, um, yeah, I, I think he's he's a great actor, casting a great role, and it really elevates the movie for me. That's so interesting, William, that you say that typically it's the, oh, I've been wronged in the past, but I'm actually a good guy, because I feel as though that is him, that his backstory, and do correct me if I'm wrong, because, you know, it's not the most complicated plot, but I am usually a bit more challenged by these films, aren't I? But you know, he he was a good guy, wasn't he? He fell in love, he got a wife, he made some children, and it wasn't until she was taken from him that um, that he turned all sort of uh, bitter and avenging. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, I felt like he was, I mean, I thought he was, he was relatively nuanced in terms of being relatively loving towards his kids, but only for as, only as long as they were uh, uh, helping to avenge the, the, what he thinks is kidnapping, doesn't he, more than mm-hmm. murder of his wife? Um, but isn't that the same? Isn't that the same as all of them? Well, all I, of I, I think what, what, made a, what made a difference for me was the fact that he, he has his redemption at the beginning of the movie, right? Because he, he starts off as this immortal warlord that's, that's done all this, this, this crazy evil stuff. Um, but then when he meets his wife, like, mm. he has the redemption. He, and he, he retires. He retires. He becomes mortal. He puts away the, the ten rings slash bracelets uh, <laughs> for, for good. Um, and it's it's only after she dies that he reverts to his old ways. And so mm. there's, there's a sense of tragedy about that because he, he had all of that stuff figured out until it was torn away from him. Um, and so that, 
you know, when when he does have the final confrontation with Shang-Chi at the end, like you see where he's coming from, you see he's delusional, but mm. it's also not it's not usually like like one of the, the Marvel plots, like because you know, um Tony Stark didn't respect me, so I'm gonna create an army to destroy the world, you know, that kind of thing. I, I think it it's very smart what this movie does and keeping it very, very personal until the very end where the dragons come out and the CGI gets really bad. Um, <laughs> like, it's it's all personal. He he is only there to save his wife, or at least he thinks he's there to save his wife, and no one will stand in his way. Um, whereas so many other Marvel movies are about the world domination or making a billion bucks or, you know, these, these really, really, I would say, weakly written aspirations. And even with Black Panther, like, Killmonger, um, Michael B. Jordan's character was—he was really held up on a pedestal as as someone who was really nuanced and who the audience could could associate with and identify with. But I feel like his turn in Black Panther was so dramatically, theatrically evil mm. that it just takes so much away from what he actually becomes by the end of the film. Whereas Tony Leung's character, you can still see the spark of humanity that you know, was in him from the beginning of this movie where he does have his redemption arc. I love this connection you're making, William, or this critique, I guess, of the Marvel Universe. I I love the Michael B. Jordan character in Black Panther, and I think I mentioned before my my biggest bugbear with that film is that he dies at the end of the film. I would have really liked to have seen him survive and continue. Who knows? He might come back for the second one. Mm. Uh, and I and I agree with you. The villain the villains are, are pretty lackluster across the board. However, I will say that the uh, villain, the main villain, Thanos, his his uh, outing in Avengers: Infinity War is, I think, fantastic. Oh and he, yeah, agree. You know, it's an ensemble film, but really, that's his movie. He is the yes. central character of that film, and I think yeah. that is one of the better, in fact, one of the best Marvel movies that have come out. It's it's his hero's journey, which is what's so great about Infinity War. Yeah, and I will agree with you. Like the CGI, there's some really patchy CGI in this film. I would say it happens much earlier than the final right, sequence. Right, yeah, there's there's yeah. some trees, if I remember correctly. I was like, oh, I turned to <laughs> I turned to my boyfriend and his flatmate. I was like, there's some some shoddy CGI here. Mm. But um, I'd say what well, when those dragons came out, or when the dragon came out of the water, I was all about it. I was like, oh, yeah. really? <laughs> uh, I just I, I think like by that point when the by the time they get to the magical Pokemon place, yeah. I was I was like, cool, this is all I want from this movie. You start off with like a speed sequence on a bus, you end up on like a skyfall sequence on the side of some scaffolding on a building, and then all of a sudden you're into Godzilla versus Kong territory. Um <laughs> And so by that point, I was, I was like, right, you, you can do what you like, movie. Uh, I'm here for the pretty pictures. <laughs> so I guess, I'm guessing that, you know, not just because we haven't been able to get into the cinemas, but because this is on Disney Plus, you know, we will have watched this on smaller screens than. Uh, so if I had watched this in the VMAX um, on big recliner seats, then I might have found it all. I remember that when the trailer came out, I was genuinely excited and I was like, that looks like it's going to be freaking cool. I can't wait. But then watching it on a, you know, a reasonable, not massive size telly, um, it, it, it didn't quite have the same effect for me. So by the end, when the dragons are doing all their thing and everyone's doing their fighting and da, 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 and it no longer has the sort of thrill or panache of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or, or Hero from back in the day, it feels really like all these films go all the time. You know, I, 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 no, I, I wasn't into it by then. I don't think it's a bad film, but I'm just saying I, I wasn't into it by then. 
I, I like the point you make, Sarah, and I, I would kind of agree, agree with that. I, I think the, the final set piece is, I, I think it's technically competent, but watching it on a small screen is just, it felt really disorienting and kind of cheap. Like, I don't know, the, 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 it felt like it maybe could have done with a couple more passes of rendering. Mm -hmm. um, the, the dragons themselves, I think their designs were fine and, and all that. I, I think, Jeremy, my main disappointment was the 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 resolution of Shang-Chi and his dad. Like, the arc was was really well done, and it ended with, with a pretty kick-ass fight where they're kind of trying to share the rings, and it's, it's this big metaphor of, you know, passing power from father to son and all that, and, and then it, it turns into a dragon fight, and you're like, oh, come on. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. But I, I agree with you. That that interchange with the rings and the, the color, the way they use color in this film is really well done. You know, you know exactly who the who who you should be rooting for based on which color their weapons are, and, and the same with the rings. Um, you yeah, know, I, I fully agree. It, it was it was messy. There's lots of things in this movie that just appear. Like I think the sister character is very strange. Mm. I, she's not very well crafted uh, and. I also think the Michelle Yeoh character, she sort of just turns out of nowhere as like an exposition machine. She has so much exposition. So mm. much. Do you feel um, like she's she's sort of an in-joke? Uh, possibly. Or maybe just because Let's she's a Michelle really... Michelle back? She, a little she, bit she, like they did in Gunpowder Milkshake. I mean, she's just a really well-known, you know, Asian martial artist. Uh, yeah. I, I guess that's that, that's the thing. And it's, oh, come on, such a pity to cast Michelle Yeoh. And not to do anything with her. She gets a couple mm. of training scenes with Shang, and then she doesn't really get to participate in the final battle in any any cool way. And you're right, Jeremy. Like her purpose is just to spout exposition. Same with um with Ben Kingsley. Like I was so happy that he was back from Iron Man three because I, I don't know about oh, you guys. Oh yes, I yes. love mm. Iron Man three. I, I love that. Yeah, movie. me too. And and he's he's okay. I mean, he's you know secondary comic relief after Aquafina, but for most of the climax, his role is just exposition machine. Mm. Like every second word out of his mouth is explaining what's going to happen in the final act, and it felt kind of a waste of, of Ben Kingsley talents because he, so, from what he has, he's really good. So I read that um, the director Dustin Destin. Destin, Daniel Cretton, um, who also uh, co-wrote the script. So I read that he wanted to take this opportunity to bring Ben Kingsley's, is it Trevor Slattery? What yeah. a great name. Um, so back from Iron Man 3 because of the 2013 film that was kind of problematic in its depiction of the, the Mandarin or the person impersonating the Mandarin. And so it um, brought him back so that there was a great opportunity for the Trevor Slattery character to sort of... Um, uh, yeah, I guess sort of apologize or at least sort of explain um, explain why he was like he was back in the 2013 film and kind of mitigate somewhat for, for what we would now definitely eight years on consider to be um, racist. Does that ring true? I got that. I got yeah. that quite clearly from the intention of this movie and I appreciated it. Uh, I, I do I do agree with William though as well that he at the end of the film it reminds me of some of the later Peter Jackson films particularly the Hobbit movies where they use characters like this in sort of intercut clearly filmed in pickups ways <laughs> just to kind of bolster and, and fill in the gaps um, but I still it was a, still a thrill seeing him and that callback yes. to that character I never 
expected to see that character show up again. Yeah. And and what a wonderful way to do it. Yes. Open the open the yeah open into the cave and who's this guy and look and his accent. I mean, yeah. the slightly Liverpudlian, even though he's carrying around that ridiculous piece of fur. Um, what's it called? His his uh, that creature that he talks to. Mitchell was that its name? Something like that. Yeah. Um, that was actually very funny. Um, yeah. And when yeah. they're driving in the in the forest and everything, I yeah, I think his comic delivery is oh my gosh, Ben Kingsley's just priceless. And the um, design, the design of those Pokemon is is fantastic. They are so cute. Oh my gosh, gonna sell sell so many plushies. Um, and then um, <laughs> when they when they get to uh, Talor, where you, you see actual Pokemon like um, Alola Nightales, um, basically it, it's really cool because I mean they're recognizably creatures from Chinese folklore and myth, but done with Marvel budget. And you're like, wow, this is. This is actually visually quite spectacular. It's just by the end of it, it gets a little messy. I should just well, like to make a quick note to our listeners that when we chose these two films, we hadn't actually necessarily watched both of them. And so we went with the Tony Leung uh, uh, connection. But I think what's also what's always fun about this podcast work, right, is watching one of the films and then watching the other and drawing the connections out of them. And I think we picked two films that are very, very different in genre. Um, you know, we've got the the 2000 made but 1960s set uh, Hong Kong melodrama versus this this historical futuristic Avengers Marvel film. Uh, and yet, isn't it interesting um, the points of similarity? And I just wanted to say that to me, Ben Kingsley's Trevor Slattery is the comic relief, obviously in in Shang Chi. Although I adore Aquafina. In, in the mood for love, which is not a funny film at all, guys, because oh, it's I, about no, I, love. I, I, not. Hang on, Sarah. I, I think it's pretty funny. Um, I was shocked at how funny it was. <laughs> what in the mood for love? Are you talking yeah. about though with the 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 oafish character who? No, um, no, I'm just thinking of the the little interstitial like dialogue bits, and and it's it's really charming because of how how comfortable both the leads are in their you know in their characters. Um, since I mean Maggie Chan and Tony Leung had have worked in so so many things together. Yeah. Um, the chemistry comes off as, as so genuine and so warm, and like there there were parts of that movie where I laughed out loud, and I for sure did not laugh out loud during Shang Chi. Like I oh. I thought it was it was fine, but it wasn't right. it wasn't funny like I found in the mood for love to be. Oh wow, okay. Jeremy, yeah. did you find in the mood for love funny? <laughs> I I can't say laughing or humor was the the pre- prevailing <laughs> response emotion <laughs> uh but i did i was going to say earlier when we were talking about how shang chi is in the ten or what is it the legend of the ten rings um how it's visually stunning with the messy end i mean i was going to segue at that point as well sarah because <laughs> i feel <laughs> the same about in the mood for love it's it's mm. a beautiful film with a, a really strong first hour that just sort of like what the actual happens at the end um and I read afterwards about how the filmmaker makes the made this film, you know, without a script and sort of mm. exploring it. It felt very David Lynchian, actually. It reminded me a lot of Lynch uh, and the way that it, it, it moved. Um, was it funny? I, I wouldn't say that, but I absolutely agree that the, the romance was palpable. What a mm. wonderful romance. And the performances of Tony Leong and Maggie, is it Cho? Uh, it's, it's Chiang. I, I mean, in, in Mandarin, it's Zhang, but uh, of course, this is a, a Cantonese pronunciation. So, uh, Chong. Chiang. Chong. Yeah. Chong. 
uh, is just spectacular. And the emotion that the, that the two of them are able to communicate through just kind of brooding looks and mm. uh, the director really gives their face the screen, you know, mm. Um, mm. it's quite spectacular. And I was sitting there going, I know Maggie Cheong's face from somewhere uh, very well. What movie, what movie, what movie? And of course it's Hero, which yes. uh, Tony Leong yeah. is in as well. And I think and, and we... they, they play lovers in Hero as well. Like, it's... yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like a it's like a hark back to to yeah. this film i'm sure and i loved that movie when it came out and i and i still love it having but i haven't seen it in a long time mm. um and i think that we probably you know we sit in our chat that it made more sense to pair 10 rings with hero but i still love that we've connected it to in the mood for love because we'll probably talk about hero anyway mm-hmm. because the yeah the, the love in this is, is spectacular and there's there's a core of Ten Rings that is a love story as well with Tony Long's character. Mm-hmm. So well, yeah. although, also though, what about Sean and Aquafina? Uh, Lily? No, Lily. Katie. Katie. What about Sean and Katie? You see, I was thinking they clearly have you know, witty repartee, and she's on board with the whole thing. And at the end, they link arms and walk through the fiery Benedict Wong's fiery ring entrance <laughs> thing. And um and um and and. and, and, and and they're not, and their relationship is not consummated, and there is just kind of like this lovely tantalizing. Gosh, these guys would make such a cute couple, right? Um, which is sort of the same but different with um, Maggie and Tony in In the Mood for Love. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, which is also an unconsummated uh, romance where, gee, these two would make such a cute couple, you know? Is uh, it unconsummated? I couldn't figure yes. out. With, well, like, what was the sequence where she was hiding in his room? Like what? What had they been doing there? They'd been hanging show? out, but yeah, that was they, because they've been, of the they, gossip. They've been, they've been eating noodles. There's so much, so much food scenes, so so many food scenes, and then the mood for love. Uh, and I, I love it for that. I it made me really hungry for wonton noodle soup. Uh, but yeah, they've been eating noodles. She was helping him write his manuscript. Um, just they've just been out. hanging out, Jeremy. Hanging out. But what Except, about the sequence where they, where he he has his own house somewhere else, and then she's umming and ahhing, and then she does decide to go? Well, I mean, obviously they love each other, but she just goes to visit with him. But no, the whole point is she says throughout the film, we are not going to stoop to the 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 depths of our our horrible husband and wife partners who are who are off shagging each other and having this affair. We're not going to be like them. She says it so many times. And and so I've read stuff that says we don't know if their affair was consummated. And I feel very strongly we totally do. And that that's the whole beautiful uh, loss that uh, Tony's character is experiencing by the end of the film and you know when the, the 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 titles go up at the end and it says he just has to carry through the rest of his life the sense of a time and a feeling uh, and, and it just feels like not unrequited love, unrealized love. I, I do know? think that the reserved nature of this film is one of its absolute strengths and how it doesn't mm. show, it's far more sensual to suggest these things on a visual medium than if we just saw, uh, you know, semi-naked or naked actors um, simulating sex, which I, I did read that they did film those sort of scenes, but they yes. decided together to mm. peer it back. And I, I really appreciate that. They but created I, I a whole different thought, film. 
Jeremy, you're mm -hmm. right. The whole film originally, and you're quite right in saying that it was improvised because there was no script. Yes, initially they were shooting it in a really sexy, uh, sexy, naughty sort of way. That's the quote that Tony says in the special features on the Criterion <laughs> Blu-ray. But, um, you know, yeah. And then they actually decided. And so we do get to see them smile at each other and they're beguiling and they're cutesy and they're touching each other more and all that. But that doesn't wind up in the actual film, hey? Yeah, I, I, it made me think, though, of an older time, you know, it's set in the 60s. And I thought if this film was made back in the 50s or 60s, then it would absolutely be a stand in for they have consummated this relationship. Mm -hmm. I guess it's just a sign of the times that it was made in the 90s where you could show a lot more, um, you know, but I, I would still say there's an ambiguity there, Sarah. I know you feel strongly that it's very clear. I don't think it matters either way. Like the point is that there's a love there that goes, you know, it's deeper than just sex. Um, but I think there's space there to read it either way. There is space, um, and but one of the readings that I've done does does say that it is it is likened to uh, is it David Lean's uh, Brief Encounter, um, and Brief Encounter mm -hmm. obviously is is definitely from the olden days, made in the olden days, about the couple who meet on the train station uh, platform uh, and who have a sort of an emotional affair, if you will, and there is absolutely no consummation in that. Um, and then go their separate ways, and and there's this this lifetime of longing sort of thing. So that's why I they, but also I stick to the reading of it not being consummated simply because it makes it so much more interesting. Because we're used to seeing films where two people are thrown together or come together or whatever, and they do consummate their relationship, and it's like, so that's fine. But we've seen that a million times. Imagine how much more palpably powerful it is to go, we are desperately in love with one another and we are not going down that particular road together. You know what I mean? It's so much yeah. more heightened. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's it's shorthand, isn't it? You know, sex is shorthand for, for we, they're in love. Mm. And it's when, when films do the work of an actual love story, you know, I feel the same about A Star Is Born as well, how they really built that love together. And it's absolutely the same with this one. You feel the love that they have in a way that, if they just kind of hop into bed together, it's it doesn't have the same impact because we have no. not been brought along for the journey. I could say way more, so I will because it was a pause and I'm going to take it. Because <laughs> also I think what is so lovely about In the Mood for Love is the way that they play the roles of each other's uh, absent partners, initially at least. You know, there's that real sadness of the, I think it's the first meal though, they go out together Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, what would your husband eat, and what would your wife eat? And then they 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 eat those meals that the part that the other's person's partner would do. And it's like, we're here to fill a gap in one another's lives initially, because our, as I keep saying, our our horrible partners are off shagging each other in Japan. Um, and so that's a really unusual and quite touching. Uh, way to start an affair you know you normally start an affair not by evoking the person that you're ostensibly cheating on or, or falling out of love with um, and then when they do that wonderful scene where she practices saying to her husband and and has Tony Leung's character as the stand-in and she practices saying to him are you having an affair uh, and they role play it and uh, and she gets dreadfully upset and all that it's like wow that's like that's amazing I think. Can we can we quickly talk about how the two scenes you brought up, Sarah, are constructed? Because I, I found it. I mean, this movie is basically it's a film school study, right? Yeah. It's 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 a movie made in 99, 2000 that's set up and structured 
in such a different way from its contemporaries. Mm. And uh, I guess what the point I was making before about it being funny, I, I think, comes from a lot of these these you know structural flourishes. Uh, for example, when they share their meal together and ask for you know what the or what what your spouse would have ordered to try and mm. understand why uh, their own spouse would go off to have an affair, you end up seeing that the the two meals that they are uh, delivered are exactly the same, just with different condiments, um, which tells you so much about why maybe this affair started in the first place and how mundane it would be compared to you know the growing attraction between our two characters. Do you mean the um, affair between the, the absent husband and yes, wife is that the, they would both eat steak with blur sort of thing? Yeah, exactly, with oh. mustard and what looks like hot sauce or ketchup. Uh, it's, it's such a fantastic character detail. I, I also love, love, love that you never, ever see the faces of the other husband yeah. and other Genius. wife. Because it's so not good. their movie. Yeah. And it, yeah. it, it shouldn't be their movie. Um, and then, of course, when they do the role play, because the film has sort of conditioned you at that point to see a faceless person as the cheating spouse. Um, when you see Maggie Chon talk to a silhouetted man, you think that it's actually, her you know, husband. Her, her husband. Yes. And then she, she slaps and it's a very half-hearted acting slap. And then you see the reverse shot of Tony Leung. And it's just, it's so charming and so Amazing. surprising. Like it, it keeps pulling the rug from yeah, out from under the audience's feet. Um, and, and that just keeps continuing on and on until we get to the ending, which as you say, Jeremy, kind of becomes a, a very, very different thing. The ending? Just the, just the sequence. The sequence in Uncle Wat. I was like, what the? Like, yeah. why are we <laughs> in Cambodia? What? And I think, I'll tell you what, I enjoyed it because I've been in Uncle Wat and, and I've been to those places. And, you know, the beautiful shots of the camera at the end moving, tracking, and you're seeing the roof. I don't think you see that now because there's sort of bat cages or bat protectors all, all put up. But um, it... I just was like, I don't get it. And I don't really want to get it because it's the end of the movie and it's a flourish about him speaking a secret into a hole in the wall. And putting, I was just like, why, that do, that why are we in Cambodia? What's that? You got that that was a reference to the tree that he mentioned earlier in the film? Yeah, I but didn't. Why, My husband why, reminded me. Oh, yeah, I got. I picked that up. And I was just oh. like, why are we in Cambodia? Like, there was been no mention of Cambodia. Like, sure, he might have gone there for work. But thematically... Yeah, I know. I was just because just you just wanted to film the temples? Uh, I, I, maybe, maybe. I, I mean, this movie apparently was a huge boon to the Cambodian tourism industry. Like, everyone wanted to go to mm. Angkor Wat and find a secret hole afterwards. Mm. Do you know what the ending reminds me of, now you mention it, is the uh, the credit cookies in Shang-Chi. Here's another connection from Sarah. Um, because if you recall, there is the mid-credits cookie, and then there's the end-credits cookie in Shang-Chi, and... Uh, and in this one, you could say that those um, rather extended scenes, uh, you know, those kind of after the intertitles, um, maybe they're like a series of credit cookies. No, they're, not. <laughs> they're bad. Don't worry. What but, were the credit um, cookies? What were the, I, I'm sure I saw one of the credit cookies. I don't know if I lasted to the end of the credits. Okay, so, what were the so, ones in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the... I forget the name of this movie. Seven Rings? Ten Rings? Ten Rings. Ten Rings. He has five on each arm. Um, so, yeah, the, the first credit cookie is... Um, so, uh, Shang and Katie go through Benedict's, uh, Benedict Wong's fiery ring of death, or... Uh, what what do you call it, Sarah? Um, anyway, they go through, <laughs> and they... 
they meet uh, Bendit Wong. I thought Doctor Strange was going to appear, but instead we get Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner and Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. Oh, Which that's is right. So yeah. weird because who it's cares? Very. And again, it's so zoomed who cares? in. I mean, they are literally phoning it in. Like yeah. literally <laughs> phoning it in. And it's like, why? Why do we care? I don't want this movie to link up to the event uh, anyway. Um, and the, uh, everything's really wooden and robotic, and it's like, oh, great, you know, Shang-Chi's gonna, he's gonna be in the Avengers, and then the final credit cookie is more fun, um, it's it shows, cute. it's, uh, the, the, the sister, um, I, I can't remember her character name, but she, um, is now in charge of the Ten Rings, you know, organization, and she's now made it not just a club for boys, because there's, there's a whole bunch of female assassins training with the male assassins as well, and then it zooms out and you see the whole compound's been this, this, this big makeover and there's graffiti on the wall and she's brought it into the 21st century. So I, I think that's a much better ending for the wait, movie. Wait, what? Yeah. I didn't see that credit cookie. Oh, really? That's at the very, very end of the credits. Tina and Shauna in the bar. Oh, no, no, no. Oh. At, the, at the very end. Ah, You have to uh, gird your loins for these Marvel credits. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Is there a third cookie? No, yeah. there's two. There's two. <laughs> no, but wait. What was the one then with them being in the bar and they're oh, talking? Oh, that's the first credit cookie because then Bendit Wong comes in with his ring of fire and they leave the bar. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then that's they go the, and see Lars and Mark Ruffalo. That's yeah. the end of the movie. That's, um, the, that's the final scene of the film, isn't it? Uh, no, no. The final scene of the film is after the dragon fight and they're like, yeah, we won. And then credits directed by uh, Destin <laughs> Daniel. And that song. I, no, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. It doesn't a cut to them telling the story with them. Like it, I remember that hard cut being like, oh, that's quite cool. Like it's domesticated. Oh, really? this whole, yeah, oh, I'm pretty okay, sure. Okay. Hmm. righty. Well, <laughs> well, there you I go. Guess, hey, it's, I guess, dear listeners, dear listeners, uh, let us know who's right yeah. in this. Very let important us know what debate. this film was like. <laughs> yes. Hey, um, it's worth saying that uh, Destin Daniel Creden. Uh, is the director of, I saw a film, I saw one of, uh, I don't know how many shorts he had made by the time Short Term 12 came out. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that? 10, 11 years ago? That was what, 2012? 11, 12? Yeah. It might have been. So Short Term 12, actually the feature of it, um, a fantastic film that he directed about um, disenfranchised youth. Hey, um, and, and, um terrific there's an there's amazing rap in it and i'm it's the dude from get out um, is it uh, lakeith sanfield right? yes so yeah. it's a it's um one of the early or if not the first <gasps> um breakouts of lakeith stanfield wait 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 wait. is this why brie larson is the in the end credit stinger because she was the star of short term 12 <gasps> yes, she was. connections there's another connection good point so um good point uh, so yes, anyway, so he made Short Term 12, which is a terrific film, and everyone should see it, particularly you, Jeremy. And um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, nice. Short, oh, Short I have to check it is, out. It's awesome. I, I think it's it's so interesting that Marvel are hedging their bets on these, you know, these indie directors um, mm. and giving them huge multi-million budget blockbusters based on the MCU. I think um, I, I'm super keen to see what Chloe Chloe Zhao does with Eternals. Mm. I know it's been getting pretty savage with the reviews, but man, just what a fascinating experiment! Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that. And there's a narrative there about 
you know there's a potential that it is just an average movie but i also have seen the narrative about the type of movie that she's made and like i guess you mentioned misogynistic earlier william and the general fandom of marvel um so it's going to be interesting to see can we talk about aquafina because i think she oh, is yes. spectacular mm. always um, i watched the farewell about this time last year and my goodness what a wonderful wonderful film what a brilliant performance um and for all of her sidekickiness in this uh, i also want to do i do want to shout out our our lead as well as simul leo is it his name mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the two of them together, I would happily watch another one of these movies with with the two of them at the front. Um, yeah, just a great chemistry, great casting, and, you know, dragons flying around in Aquafina's voice. I couldn't help but think of Raya and the Last Dragon, <laughs> uh, which was, also came out this year. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I think that what's, what struck me most about their chemistry was how unforced and how natural it was. Like, they, they seemed like real friends who had known each other for for a decade mm. um and a, a lot of it i mean even with all the punch-ups around like orkafina's dialogue it felt like a real person like cracking jokes which is not always what you get with the quippy you know marvel dialogue mm. and like have, have either of you like really gotten into uh, kim's convenience no no because like they'll see more they'll like he he's a really funny guy and and i think a lot of that, you know, rubs off on this movie. Just naturally very charming, very, very laid back, kind of cool without wanting to be cool. But also on the flip side, having kind of that, that everyman quality. Because I, I don't think he's, you know, I mean, he's obviously jacked for the role, but he's not huge like like Chris Evans, you know. Or, Apparently he put uh, on four and a half Chris kilograms of muscle. Wow. Wow. That's what I read. Apparently he already knows how to do three types of martial arts and he learned eight more. Yeah, because he used to be a stuntman. Like, he, he did a lot of stunt work back in the day. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I think he just seemed to be a, a much more believable everyman character compared yes. to some of the other Marvel everyman, uh, everymen. Uh, for example, like Paul Rudd and Ant-Man. You yes. kind of, you know, I, I think there's a quality about about uh, Liu Simu that doesn't come across in many of these other leading men. Um, and I know there's a lot of criticism of the actual character of Shang-Chi to be pretty one note, how all the side characters like Okafina and his dad, and they're all more interesting than him. And I, mm. I think that's true, but I think it gives him short, short thrift as well, because he, he does a really, really good job in grounding everything. Mm, um, yeah. and I really felt that throughout the movie. Yeah, I think for him to have been an Iron Man jokey type, and I adore Robert Downey Jr. and I love him as Iron Man, uh, and I and I really like the twinkle in his eye with everything that he says. But I hear you, William. I think that uh, I think it was appropriate in a way. I mean, I didn't love the Shang Chi character or performance particularly because it didn't have that sort of that mm. panache or quite that twinkle in the eye. But I do hear you. I think it was. Um, I think he definitely carries himself. The actor carries himself with a real confidence um, that isn't arrogance um, uh, for, for, for taking on such a such a major role. I th- but I agree with everything you say, Jeremy, about their uh, the, the charms of, of the two of them together. And uh, and Aquafina can do no wrong for me. I I, I really love her. <laughs> can we also talk about Hero because that mm-hmm. film is. At least, but at least in my memory, spectacular. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I saw that film when I was 17 or 16 years old with my mum. We went to the film festival Nelson, the Suter Art Gallery Theatre, and I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, this looks amazing. Mm-hmm. I think Kill Bill was coming out and this film was around about the same time. Tarantino had endorsed it. Uh, and it was just an absolute joy. And I, I had never seen Rashomon, which is the film that I guess it's harking back to, you know, the same event mm-hmm. told from mm-hmm. different perspectives. Uh, and so that narrative style was really impressive to me. I hadn't seen um, Jackie Brown. Tarantino kind of does that in Jackie Brown as well, where you get the same mm-hmm. same event told multiple times. And just visually, uh, I hadn't seen The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, which does oh, yes. the changing colours, mm. uh, which Hero does as well. So that film did a lot of very impressive stylistic and storytelling things that I had, hadn't experienced in other spaces. Um, and, and I remember the performances of the, each of the actors being mm. really poignant. And, and again, those, those stoic faces holding so much emotion and story. Um, and heartbreak it's yeah. it's a really spectacular movie i think it was the second film uh directly on the heels of crouching tiger hidden dragon that uh used that wonderful wire work to such great effect in the mm-hmm. the uh the, the the martial arts scenes and i noticed that in uh shang chi there was um a little bit of wire work or at least it certainly looked like it in the movement particularly when uh Chang-Chi is fighting uh, Michelle Yeoh's character when he's sort of doing his mm. training, which was actually quite, that was quite beautiful and would have been nicer on a bigger screen, I think. Mm. Um, so, yes, I, and I, I can't wait for us to talk about the colour theory stuff because Heroes, <laughs> hello, was I guess very... you mean wire work in mainstream Western cinema because it's a, you know, oh, it's yes. a long, long tradition. And, yeah. Or at least crossover cinema, cinema, right? Because, yeah. you know, yeah, that's right. Um, and, and... Yeah, so I, 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 I love the wire work in Shang-Chi. I think looking at a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff, it becomes very, very obvious how how much the stunt coordinators and the choreographers were involved with the making of the movie. I think Marvel also gets a lot of bad rap sometimes with the use of previs, you know, uh, directors like Chloe Zhao and, and even like Taika Waititi coming in to say that they don't actually get to direct a lot of the action scenes because mm. they're already pre, they're pre-prepared for them, right? But the previous work and, and the stunt choreography in Shang-Chi, I think it really it harkens back to, you know, chi- um, Chinese and Hong Kong cinema of the 1970s. And, like, it, it feels different from other Marvel action scenes. It feels more cohesive, more coherent, mm-hmm. and uh, more physical because it is done by, you know, a lot of the same stunt teams that worked with Jackie Chan, that worked with Ren Ho Ping. And, and you can feel that on screen. Now, I think the CGI often obscures a lot, a lot of the really cool stuff. Um, but even with that, like the, the bus, I could not believe how much of that bus scene was actually physically real. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. You see the behind the scenes making of it's like, holy cow, like, yeah, it's CG flourishes, but almost every single leap and every single camera move was not a digital thing. Like it was, wow. it was wire work, old fashioned wire work, which is awesome. Um, I found a connection with the James Bond movie from 1986 called A View to a Kill, um, the one with Christopher Walken as a baddie and Grace Jones in it. And there's a fantastic scene in that. And look, we're going way back to the 80s, guys, and it's Roger Moore <laughs> and who cares? However, there's a scene in San Francisco, probably on the same street that Aquafina <laughs> then drives the bus down, where um, the, the Bond girl is in the front seat of a fire truck. 
and Bond is um, busily trying to fight off baddies and swing from a ladder as they go veering, careering mm. down the street in San Francisco. And I was like, oh my gosh, Shang-Chi clearly like used this as a reference. And there's cool. even a bit where he says, turn. Um, and she, and not that <laughs> way, the other way. And that sort of thing. And I was like, oh my God, it's the same. Uh, so there you go. A view to a kill, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, gosh, that's the one where Roger Moore is like three times the age of the Bond girl, I think, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> hey, well, let's talk about colour theory. Yeah. Because, um, you know, these the, the colours in Hero are, are a big part of the narrative and how mm. it changes the not just the colour visually, but the colour of the, the emotion of the story. Um, but, Sarah, you were quite enamoured by the, the colours, and I was as well, mm. in in the mood for love. Um, do you want to speak to what stood out for you? Yeah, well, I mean, clearly the green literally stood out. There were so <laughs> many, like virtually every shot, whether it's a jadeite cup and saucer or uh, a lamp or the beautiful dresses. And I mean, we could do a whole podcast on Holy Maggie Chung's. Holy moly, uh, those, those amazing. dresses. <gasps> those, uh, how do you say it? Is it Chung Song? Chung Song? Uh, no, it's uh, no, uh, Si Pao, Si Pao. Ah, the most yeah. exquisite frocks. And of course, the, the yeah. there were two cinematographers on In the Mood for Love. One of them is Christopher Doyle, uh, who is a <laughs> an off-the-chain kind of uh, long-time collaborator of Wong, Wong Kar Wai. What were you going to say about him, William? Uh, I was going to say, he was also a cinematographer on Hero. So he brought yes. a lot of that color theory stuff with him. And he does a lot of Wong, Wong Kar Wai stuff and a lot of everybody's yeah. stuff. And um, But... Uh, yeah, the, the so much, uh, you know, I said to my husband, oh, there's a lot of male gaze here as well also because there's um, a lot of camera yes. shots that glide over Maggie's bottom and then uh, and actually, you know, almost an equal amount of um, Tony Leong's bottom, I notice. Um, but uh, the colours, all right. So lots and lots of red, which obviously uh, evokes pas passion and, and, and uh, whether it's angry passion or love passion. Um, and red also being the it's a wedding dress color, isn't it? In in yeah. in China and, and Hong Kong, mm. um, but the green really really stood out for me. It was exquisite green wallpaper behind um, I think it was the boss in his office mm. uh, and Shang Chi when all of everybody's dressing in hot pink um, to to fight the baddies. And I thought, oh okay, I hadn't thought about hot pink as being like a particularly a color theory sort of <laughs> sort of color, but um. <laughs> All, all very startling and just gorgeous. I loved it. Uh, one thing about the colours as well, um, I think they contrast so beautifully with a lot of the starkness of the movie. Uh, which one? Like, which one? Uh, in, in, uh, in the mood for love, right? Because right? so much of the movie is also set um, in front of backdrops of grey and concrete mm. and, you know, the dilapidated insides of very, very narrow passageways in old, you know, Hong Kong apartments. Um and in so many scenes in the rain and, yes. you know, down darkened, like darkened alleyways leading to noodle carts. And then when you have these bursts of color, like the um, the hotel that Tony Leung is staying at and the, the, the beautiful red drapes kind of billowing in the wind, mm. it's just so gorgeous. Um, and coupled with the, I guess also, it, it really surprised me how um, Maggie Chon's Tsipao it wasn't just a aesthetic thing. Like they use that to great storytelling effect as well. Like it is, it is one thing to show her being beautiful, but another thing to use her wardrobe as a way of telling passage of time. 
um, yes. and montages. And I think how how this movie dealt with time in cinema, you so very, very rarely see outside of, I guess, French New Wave. Like, it felt very, very French to me. Yes. Um, and, and, of course, like, uh, Wang Xiaowei had a lot of, you know, French influence in the cinema anyway. Um, but, like, the, the, the whole thing being basically built up from a series of prolonged montages and sometimes you don't know how much time has elapsed between certain scenes there was one scene where i literally thought the the copy i was watching had skipped a reel and mm. I, I was watching the same scene over again and it's like oh uh, just you know uh, it, it started buffering again but of course it's the same location with two completely different contexts um, and how they use this this kind of staccato passage of time and how they link it to their burgeoning feelings for each other uh, was such a, I, I guess, a masterstroke of filmmaking to me. Just the editing is is brilliant. Nice. Hey, well, Tim, let's, let's do our final thoughts. Let's wrap this up. So, uh, Sarah, do you want to jump in with your final thoughts about either film or both films? Thank you. Um, yes, Jeremy, I should like to share some opinions. Um, I, as you know, I'm a little bit fatigued by um, Marvel after Marvel after Marvel. And you guys very generously say you're excited about Chloe Zhao's Eternal. Although there is a part of me that feels that to 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 see a Marvel movie directed by a woman and the first Asian woman at that would be an important uh, thing to do. But it doesn't really excite me greatly. And as I've said, I, there's a sadness for me that I didn't get to see uh, Shang-Chi and the Ten Bracelets uh, in, a, in a huge <laughs> cinema, because I do think it would have it would have been a, uh, a more thrilling experience had I done so. Um, however, really happy with the the individual performances of just about everybody. Um, but in the mood for love, this of uh, Shang-Chi in terms of uh, there are no massive fight scenes, hardly anybody raises his or her voice. Um, do you know what I mean? There, there's no sex. Um, I mean, neither mm. film has sex, but what I mean is it's a love story that doesn't go there and stuff. How extraordinary uh, it repeats that most exquisite um, Japanese composed uh, piece of music mm. throughout In the Mood for Love, which has become iconic uh, in and of itself. And yet every time it played, I didn't go, oh, not this again. You know, <laughs> just absolutely captivating and enthralling to use two words. Of, and really, I think I felt really thrilled that it had been probably a couple of decades, actually, since I had seen In the Mood, Mood for Love and uh, and that it had held up. Uh, and just feels timeless in terms of a canon of cinema in a way that obviously I know that it's an unfair comparison. This is apples with not apples, but <laughs> I don't think Shang-Chi will, you know. Um, apples and cheeseburgers. There you go. <laughs> so, yes. Excellent. Thank you. William, what are your final thoughts? Yeah. Um, in the move for love, I am really, really happy uh, we, we picked this movie as a comparison for Chang-Chi because I've been wanting to see this for the longest time, just hearing hearing people's thoughts on this and, and seeing the retrospectives. And I think it was voted number, number two movie of all time in a BBC poll, which is like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> but it, it really is a masterpiece. I, I think it runs the risk sometimes of being a little pretentious. But I mean, Wang Xiaowei's films are, you know, very pretentious. Um, but I, I don't think in a bad way. Um, mm. It's beautifully shot. The editing is just incredible. The acting is so good. I, I agree with, about the music, Sarah. Like that repeated motif is just, it's heartbreaking and uplifting in equal measure. And it's great. It's great how it does that. 
Um, and yeah, it's just, I, I think, completely deserving of all of the accolades that it's been receiving over the, the last two decades. Uh, Shang-Chi, I would say, apart from the ending, which I really didn't like, I, I think it, it resorts to that Marvel messy CGI combat, all these armies on screen doing nothing. Um, apart from that, everything else, I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. Um, well, one thing we haven't really brought up is the, I guess, the cultural capital of, of Shang-Chi. And it's yes. awesome. I, I think it is. it blew me away that maybe about 40%, if not more of the dialogue is in subtitled Mandarin. Like what movie does this? What, what blockbuster film made in Hollywood does this? Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and, and it wasn't, to me, it didn't feel pandering like it did in movies like Mulan where, you know, the, the whole tone was just off. This, this feels natural. And I, I love that both of you brought up um, uh, the farewell with Aquafina as well, because one thing I didn't like about The Farewell was how much it needed to explain everything to Western audiences, where this this movie does not, and it, it never does, and you just live with the reality that these characters live in, and the fact that they are, you know, of Chinese descent, and a lot of the stuff involves Chinese culture, uh, felt really, really genuine in, in a way that I was so happy to see in a Hollywood blockbuster. Um, action is really cool. I think the acting is solid. And yeah, Tony Leung, uh, you just get lost in that man's eyes. I think he is amazing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I, I, I agree actually with everything you both said. Uh, I, had, I had a good time with uh, Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, you know, on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon, whatever it was. Uh, on a on a reasonably large television and a good sound system, it's these Marvel movies. You know, I I don't ever really go back and rewatch them unless it's Thor Ragnarok, which I love. Um, so I was I was happy as, uh, but I, I I agree with all your criticisms about the film and Aquafina, like you say, Sarah. Just I think she's she can do no wrong. She's a wonderful presence on the screen, and I'd like to see her get more leads, like in the farewell, uh, because I think it. It does something to her energy you know she she isn't able to just be the quippy side character and is able to bring a lot more heart to the to this to the screen i really enjoyed it and in the mood for love i had a great time it really reminded me of cabaret as well actually mm. uh, the scenes in this sort of collective living environment was very reminiscent of cabaret uh, i i really enjoyed the colors i enjoyed the use of the, the play with time that you mentioned william and i enjoyed the um yeah, a lot of elements about it. I did find a little, like, you know, the male gaze you mentioned, Sarah, I also would say is a little bit more misogynistic in the way that the female character is depicted. You know, she cries a lot and <laughs> it's mm. it's, a, it's a little bit like, oh, gosh, okay. But apart from that, um, my only other major criticism is the ending. I just think, you know, it's like they're like, oh, I don't know how to end this. Let's just go to Cambodia and film Uncle Wat. <laughs> uh, and so I, I sort of, that for me, the, the 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 endorsement of it being the second biggest movie of all time i'm like oh it was definitely a movie of its time you know like it, mm. it feels a bit dated from for the 2000s and 90s because of that but everything else it brings to the table was an absolute joy to watch and um, I, I agree i'm really glad we paired it with this film even though hero seems like the more obvious choice um, it's, it's meant that we've, we've stepped into i guess again we've talked about this a lot but we just don't, we're not getting movies like In the Mood for Love at the mm. moment. Um, I guess, you know, in some ways it's a classic, and so there's no movies like In the Mood for Love. But those those films, um, yeah, we, we're getting them through the independent cinema, but some of the crossover is not happening. And I'd like to see 
I mean, in some ways, comparing a Marvel movie to this type of movie feels appropriate um, as, as a contrast of the type of films we're getting. Mm. And on that note, dear listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Cinema in Context. If you enjoyed our podcast, then please share it with your film-loving friends. You can listen to Cinema in Context on SoundCloud, Spotify, Radio Public, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe to us and follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode and give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare. Look out for our next episode in a month's time, which will be our wrap-up episode of 2021. And until then, Nohora Mai! mai.